You're clean, aren't you? Except for your tower. You're a tower junkie, Roland. Hello and welcome to Tower Junkies, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. Tower Junkies is a podcast celebrating the work of Stephen King with a special focus on his magnum opus, The Dark Tower series. We discuss the themes, characters, and mythology of the series in Palaver episodes and review the books and comic series in Kef episodes. We also discuss discuss non-Tower King novels, TV and film adaptations of King's work, and the latest news about all things that serve the King. You can find more of our work at TowerJunkiesPod.com and follow us at on every level of social media at TowerJunkiesPod. I'm your host, the aforementioned Matt... I'm one of your hosts, the aforementioned Matt Hurt, and with me today, as usual, is Tiny. Hi, Tiny. Hey, buddy. Hey, how's it going? I am quarantined. Same here. Uh, yes, we are recording. We usually record these, uh, in the same room, but we are practicing our social distancing, uh, like good little boys and girls. We're both boys. Um, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, but yeah, we, we are doing our part to flatten the curve and everything. And, uh, yeah, so we're recording remotely and, uh, how are you doing with the whole quarantine and everything? I know you're still out and about in terms of your job uh do you have any symptoms uh any any problems encountered with like the world no no i had no symptoms for me um still going out and working and um i had to go to my first medical facility though to perform some work terrifying yeah but i was lucky because i only was in like a maintenance area like i was basically in the boiler room the whole time okay so i wasn't like walking the halls and it was also in a very rural area they had only had like a handful of cases and i think the guy told me they don't have an active case in the hospital while i was there so okay nice if i had to get sent to a hospital like that was kind of the best place to go to right um yeah but i also uh so there's a location i go to every week and it's a food production place okay so they're very, very careful about mm-hmm. screening people. And it's a very, very clean location in general, which it's actually very inspiring nice. um, <laughs> to see the lengths they go to to produce a clean product. Mm-hmm. Um, so they screen people. When you come in, they take your temperature. You have to wear a mask mm-hmm. that they give you. And, like, they hired, like, nurses oh, to wow. be at the main entrance. I mean, like, they're taking it very seriously. And so... I was at this location and I had my laptop open. I was looking at their server, Mm -hmm. uh, doing my thing, updating stuff. And this dude walked in and like, they ask you these questions. Like, are you showing any symptoms? And he was like, yeah. And then he was like, the guy was like, um, okay. Uh, have, have you been exposed to anyone who, you know, was confirmed to have it? And he was like, I'm not really sure if they were confirmed, but yeah, I think so. And the guy was like, why why did you come into work today yeah. sir and, yeah and he was like i don't know i, I, I gotta work man i gotta make that money and he got sent home like Fuck it's like dude you didn't even get the, why why would you do that like yeah. i don't understand why you'd even come to work good god yeah he wasn't like coughing all over the right. place or anything and yeah he seemed a little under the weather but nothing right. insane but it's but, still like that just makes my blood boil a little bit like i understand I am not someone who I'm very fortunate in that I still have my full-time job and everything and I can do it from home and everything. 
Mm-hmm. But like just the thought, like first of all, if you're going to a job where you're working with food product and everything of any kind, like be much more vigilant than that guy. <laughs> right. Like, God, I just, I don't understand the collective assumption that, that, uh, that risking your health isn't risking everyone else's. Like it's, there seems exactly. to be, yeah, there seems to be this cognitive dissonance with people that it's just like, well, I don't care if I get sick or I'm above it because I'm me and I've been alive my entire life. So I don't care if I get it cause I won't die because I'm invincible. But it's like, you know, you'll infect other people. Like, it'll, it's spreading. Ugh. Yeah, that's that's a, an aspect or a characteristic of this crisis that a lot of people just have never grasped. Yeah, yep. And that guy included, apparently. So, yeah. Wow. Well, uh hope he gets better at not going to work. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, my job just announced that they are going to have... Uh, bandana, uh, bandanas for us for when we come into the office. Um, oh, so that'll be nice. Um, because hmm. I have to go in once a week. <sighs> right. Yeah. Yep. Um, what else about that? Uh, oh, there was a really good kind of transitioning over to our king news and stuff. Do you have any check-ins, by the way? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, I guess we can talk about uh, the stand that okay. we. Um, yeah, I finished book two of the stand. Um, I had to go to the hospital I went to was in Illinois. So, uh, two and a half hour drive each way. So that was, uh, a lot. And I did that. I went out there twice in two weeks. So that's like 10 hours. So I like kind of breeze through, uh, book two of the stand. Um, and, uh, so yeah, that's where I'm at with, uh, with that listen through. I'm kind of catching up on podcasting now as far as listening to stuff. So nice. Um, that's great. I I just started book two today. Um, yeah, because uh, peek behind the curtain, we we've recorded our book one review of the stand. We're deve- we're covering the stand in three sections, three three like sections of the book. One one episode of the podcast per section. I've already recorded the first the first one, and now we're working on the second one, and that's going to be posted closer to when the mini series is going to come out later this year. Hopefully, it's still coming out later this year this year um <clears throat> i have the hiccups i don't know if anyone could understand that but um <laughs> but yeah so i finished uh or i started book two today and then do you mind if i go into my check-ins go for it okay cool so um i rare listened to end of watch um for the first time nice um, the concluding chapter of the bill hodges trilogy um i am just insane in my head. <laughs> like I want, I, I've been wanting to watch the outsider, but I've been wanting to re listen to the outsider novel before that. And I've wanted to finish the Bill Hodges trilogy before I re listen to the outsider because the outsider ties into the Bill Hodges trilogy. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I finally listened to end of watch. Um, honestly, I th- it might be my favorite of the three. Um, oh. Yeah, really, really dug it. Um, just the 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 uh, the kind of return to Stephen Kingisms in it. Like it's like the first two books in the trilogy were pretty straightforward, kind of hard, uh, not hard boiled, but uh, like detective novels and and kind of in that genre. 
but end of watch kind of goes into more of the things that Stephen King is more comfortable with. Um, and I found that really enticing and interesting. Um, and yeah, I just, and I think that after two books going into this third book, I feel like he was more, King was much more comfortable writing these characters in this world and this genre. So I, I think it really, uh, worked out pretty well. Nice. Yeah. And eventually we'll cover him on the podcast. Um, <laughs> I was trying to figure out how we could do that. I was thinking about doing just a one-off because we've recorded a Mr. Mercedes episode, but that's like two years old. Wow. Yeah. I was thinking about just doing like a trilogy episode and then the outsider and the outsider, but I don't know. We'll, we'll talk off mic about all that. Uh, yeah. Cause we still have castle rock to go through. <laughs> oh God. Yep. Uh, which by the way, if we want to start watching castle rock, we can start watching castle rock. <laughs> um, for real. Yeah. So, yeah, um that's the check-in I have. Um I also started Joe Hill's um Nosferatu. Um only got a couple chapters into it, but pretty interesting uh pretty interesting stuff. I'm looking forward to reading more of that. Um yeah, and uh, that'll do it for check-ins, I think. By the way, on this episode of the podcast <laughs> <laughs> we're going to be reviewing Dr. Sleep, Mike Flanagan's 2019 adaptation of Stephen King's novel. Um, also a uh, sequel to Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. So stay tuned for that later in this episode. But first we have some news items to go through tiny. Okay. Um, are you excited for Stephen King news? Oh yeah. Okay. Always good. Um, I was, <laughs> I was going to be, uh, I was going to be a total dick and just be like, so what news do you have for us? <laughs> <laughs> just throw you to the wolves, throw you to the wolves of the Kala. Um, for real. So, uh, Stephen King and John Grisham, uh, had a like webinar, like live chat thing, uh, yesterday, Wednesday at 7 PM online. Um, it is it is available on Stephen King's YouTube channel. Um, I haven't watched it yet, but the event the event was free. But the authors hope attendees will consider making a donation to Bink, the bookseller industry charitable foundation. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Um, yeah, so it's just a conversation with John Gershom and Stephen King. Um, gonna check it out at some point. Okay. Um, next news item. <clears throat> Is uh, Stephen King, uh, per, before the release of If It Bleeds, which is currently out, um, he posted a video on the Simon & Schuster YouTube channel that is him reading the first chapter of If It Bleeds. Um, and it is a delight. Uh, did you see this at all, Tiny? No, I've heard about it. Okay, it is. Uh, it's just, it's awesome because like he... Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm playing now. I'll put a link in the show notes. Of course, it's this, it's an eight minute video. Um, it starts out with him in like a living room area. He's like got, uh, I don't know what kind of shirt that, oh, he had, he has a shirt that says, uh, like lover, like the way that it has the V over loser. Um, oh, okay. Uh, it, but he's wearing a mask, uh, a medical mask and everything. Um, and it's just, he's just sitting on the, sitting on a, a love seat reading from If It Bleeds. So, uh, check <laughs> that out. Uh, pretty cool. Um, yeah. And If It Bleeds is out. I haven't read any of it yet, but have you procured a copy of it? I haven't. Uh, amidst all the COVID crisis, we have kind of been watching our spending just, uh, yes. because, you know, not 
kind of leery of how everything's going to go. And so right. I actually canceled my subscription to Audible for the time. Uh, but I think I'm just going to go ahead and reactivate it because, uh, I mean, I think we're we're going to be okay. But yeah. uh, it's only $15 a month. So I think I'm going to reactivate that in the next week or two. And that's going to be my first purchase with nice. uh, my new credit. Sweet. Yeah, I am uh, looking forward to getting to it eventually. <laughs> um, <laughs> we'll, pro- we'll cover it. I, I would go ahead and say, and this is a very loose commitment thing, I would say we'll probably cover it the beginning of June on the podcast. Okay. Um, don't hold me to that, but that is the kind of idea that I have in my head. Um, but that's All not right. to say we're not going to have content because we have this episode and then uh, next week on the podcast, we're going to have an episode with Mike. Uh, he and I talked about 11-22-63, so enjoy that next week. Um, yeah, I think nice. that's pretty much all the news that I have. Um, okay. Oh, oh, the last piece of news actually is uh, there was a really great interview with Stephen King by uh, by uh, Anthony Bresnikan over at Vanity Fair, um, and he talks about he talks about Trump and about isolation, quarantine, all that stuff. Um, really great interview, and uh, I highly recommend checking it out. I'll put a link in the show notes. I tweeted it out and everything. Um, Anthony Bresnikan, nice. he like he was he worked for EW for a long time, and now he's at Vanity Fair. Dude, it, like he was one of the like he was the guy who uh, championed for uh, the Entertainment Weekly cover of the Dark Tower movie. Like he got that done. Like he got that sweet. Um, the actual movie, notwithstanding, but like he he <laughs> was instrumental in getting coverage for the Dark Tower on Entertainment Weekly, which is which is so like great and like. I tweeted about this and he like he responded to it and he was like I really appreciate it but uh he was um I just said like he he's one of my like favorite people that writes about King um he's just he's nice. really good at it so check it out link in the show notes and uh yeah um anything else before we get into Dr. Sleep Nope I'm good All right cool well, we are going to go into our review of Dr. Sleep from 2019 the movie by uh, director Mike Flanagan um, we're going to go into a non-spoiler review and then we will prompt you when we go into a spoiler review. So we're going to go into non-spoilers for Dr. Sleep, uh, written and directed by Mike Flanagan. Okay. So tiny. Um, I'm going to read the plot summary courtesy of IMDb real quick. Uh, years following the events of The Shining, a now adult Dan Torrance must protect a young girl with similar powers from a cult known as the True Knot, who prey on children with powers to remain immortal. So, this movie came out, um, where's the release date? <laughs> November? Uh, yes, November 8th, 2019 in theaters. <laughs> you guys remember what those are. Um, so stars Ewan McGregor as Dan Torrance, Rebecca Ferguson as Rose the Hat, uh, Kylie Curran as Abra Stone and Cliff Curtis as Billy Freeman. So tiny, uh, this was very, very high on your top 10 list over at obsessiveviewer.com when we did our year in review episode. How do you feel about Dr. Sleep and non-spoilers and, uh, how, how do you feel about the movie? Uh, well, to make a big, bold statement right out of the bat, I think it was better than the book, uh, nice. which, which is not something that is said in general mm. very often. Um, I actually was so excited for the movie. I don't know that I ever mentioned it on this podcast, but on Obsessive Viewer, uh, I think I talked about it 
in our end of the year episode, I was so excited to see it that I was actually out of town doing training for my job. Right. I was down in Louisville and uh, I actually went and got, I got tickets at a local theater down there and went and saw it like opening night because <laughs> um, I was so That's excited so to cool. see it. Yeah. And I didn't, did not disappoint. I had trouble going to sleep. I was so excited about the movie. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I, I, I absolutely adore what Mike Flanagan did. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, with, with this movie, Mike Flanagan has moved into my A-list of directors that I am just beyond excited about no matter what they're doing. Mm-hmm. He is up there with someone like, you know, Denis Villeneuve, mm-hmm. wow. Alex, Gar- Alex Garland. Mm-hmm. Uh, after this year, um, I mean, he just had, he just had such a, it was such a great year at the Oscars and it's such a great year for film. The fact that he stood out so much, you know, speaks volumes to how good of a director he is. And it's, it's so interesting because I'm not a horror guy. Like I, I enjoy the genre to an extent, but it's, there's several other genres that I sort of prefer in place of horror. Um, And that's really what he's known for. Yeah, I I agree. (laughs) I just love that <laughs> I'm not a horror fan. Tiny, co-host of Tower Junkies, a Stephen King podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, you all the time, Matt, you talk about how Stephen King is not just a horror writer. That and he's true. almost kind of, you know, <laughs> mistypecast in that way. So <laughs> fuck you. Um, <laughs> no, but yeah, it's uh, Mike Flanagan. I just... Mm. I just absolutely love the guy. I love what he does. I just get him. I think he gets me. Mm-hmm. We should be friends. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I, I think he just, the way that Mike Flanagan took this book and he took the shining book and he took Stanley Kubrick's the shining and blended them into this truly took them and put them in a blender and made mm-hmm. them, his own and just he was so loyal and so true to both Stephen King's vision and Stanley Kubrick's vision and his own Mm -hmm. that I think he, I think he has surpassed both of them with what he did. I I really, I really think that I think he did. I I think, like I said, I think he, I think this movie was better than the book. And I think he, I think he even surpassed uh, uh, Stanley Kubrick's vision. Wow. With The Shining, because he was able to stay true to the characters, mm-hmm. which Stanley Kubrick failed at, and I don't think he really cared, and most people don't care. That's yeah, that's. But I, I just what it, it's it is unbelievable what he achieved with this movie, and and I think it's it's unfortunate because only true fans of all of both books and Stanley Kubrick's movie will really will really comprehend how much of an achievement this movie was. It's a it's a it's a magic trick. It is yes. it is completely a magic trick and it's something that is so like special in terms of just the movie like medium um it's it's just the achievement is is incredible like it is overall it is a great fantastic movie it was uh, it was pretty high on my top 10 list as well it was your number 2 or number one? number 3 number 3 okay what was your number 1 1917. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, it like it is it is transcendent in the way that it it melds like two different iterations of of a single 
intellectual property while also honoring the published sequel of the original. It, it's just it's so it's a it like I said it's a magic trick. It is something that is um, hard to define and articulate, which is terrible for a podcast. But um, it reminds me kind of a, a little bit, but in a more complex way of the feeling I got when I saw Split in theaters and the ending of Split. Like that was another magic trick, the the reveal mm-hmm. at the end of Split. But this is this is a different beast because it is playing with like it is it is like we're inside we're inside this intricate like clock and all of these gears are turning and they're working in such a they're working together in a very specific way, but like they're the pieces are different from each other. It's like it's it's so like mind-boggling how it fits together so well because like all of these pieces are from different things and they come together and they make this one like premium kind of prime thing that is in itself a a really good well done uh creation um (laughs) absolutely yeah i I got really worried that that analogy was gonna run away from me (laughs) (laughs) um but i do want to say real quick before we progress with with the review and get too deep in it i do want to mention that our friends over at horror movie yearbook reviewed the movie in february um they did a great job check it out uh over at horror movie yearbook uh i think it's a horror movie yearbook.com um yeah so check that out Uh, they give us shout outs uh, quite a bit and i I highly appreciate it and very much appreciate it they're great guys they know a shit ton more about horror than i do or you do (laughs) if you don't mind me saying uh, not so at all check it out but yeah so also it's worth noting that we're not going to be talking about the director's cut because um, i kind of have something a little special planned for a little bit later in the year um regarding the director's cut also i haven't seen the director's cut yet um because i want either yeah because i wanted us to review the theatrical cut but anyway they do over at horror movie yearbook they did go into the differences between the uh, director's cut and the theatrical cut so check that out after you check out this review so yes so tiny um magic aside how did you feel going into it how did you feel about the casting and the performances and just on the technical level how did you feel about dr sleep well, I was, uh, I mean, it was, it was highly anticipated. My, my expectations were, I mean, they were, I don't know about as high as it gets, but they were really high. I mean, there, there have only been a couple times, I think, in my lifetime where I've anticipated movies more. Incidentally, one of them's coming up with Dune, uh, oh, Denis yeah. Villeneuve's Dune at the end of the year, mm-hmm. um, Star Wars, The Force Awakens high high expectations um and uh yeah i did a dark tower yeah. you know expectations through the well i don't know about through the roof but like just excitement for a yes. movie right being excited for something uh this this was this was up there with those so um yeah i what else did you ask besides uh the casting and everything but before you get to that i do want to mention that it was a bummer that we couldn't see it in theaters together um, yeah, I had such a weird relationship with seeing this in the theater too, because like, like you were out of town, but also there was an advanced screening that I had like passes to go to, and like I think you were out of town for that, and Kirsten wasn't available, and like I left, I left with plenty of time, like I left my apartment to go to that screening with like forty five minutes before the before it started, and I hit like. Mm-hmm. 
bumper to bumper traffic. I was trapped on the interstate and like I was so stressed out. Like I was like I I got like damn near to the theater and I was like it, the movie started five minutes ago. I'm like I can't like I just can't like first of all they probably wouldn't let me in but also like I just I'm not going to do that <laughs> like and everything yeah. so like I missed out on the advanced screening and then I saw it in the theater by myself like the opening opening weekend and like I, again like I said it was a just kind of trans transcendent uh, experience like I was just grinning ear to ear like during multiple parts throughout it um just like all the Easter eggs and stuff it was like. God, Mike Flanagan, he just, he gets it. Like he gets, he gets how to make an incredible film. And also he gets what it means to be a Stephen King fan. Um, yes. Presents it in a way that isn't like pandering to, um, pandering to the fan base or anything. It's like he, it's born like his references and admiration and love for the Stephen King fandom and, and Stephen King's work is from a place of a Stephen King fan. And you can really tell it, um, throughout both this movie and Gerald's game. Um, yeah, which we neglected to mention that he previously adapted as well. Um, right. But yeah, just between Gerald's game and Dr. Sleep, like you said, he is, he has catapulted himself uh for me at, to to being like one of the like he's like a preeminent like Stephen King adaptation person <laughs> like he is yep. like up there with like Frank Darabont in terms of like creating an incredible Stephen King adaptation and like someone that I would trust with any Stephen King property including the Dark Tower um, Absolutely yes and he, I mean, he, and he can do it with television too. Cause, uh, house on haunted hill or the haunting of hill house. Um, I still have seen dude, you've got to watch it. It's so fucking good. I know. I know. I will soon. I think, uh, yeah, I will soon. I will soon. I will soon. Whatever, whatever you watch it, I'll rewatch it with you. Cause nice. I've, I've been meaning, I've been wanting to watch it again. Sweet. Yeah. Sweet. So. Maybe we can do an obsessive viewer episode with Mike about it. Okay. Maybe. We'll see. Yeah. All right. So, Dr. Sleep. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, how was your experience seeing it? Well, let's talk about the movie. <laughs> yeah. How did you feel about the casting and the performances? Uh, Ewan McGregor, uh, uh, Rebecca Ferguson, who on a previous episode of the podcast, I, I mentioned, I, I, got her confused with Rebecca Hall. So if you've been waiting for me to call attention to my stupidity, here I am. <laughs> um, uh, Rebecca Ferguson and, and uh, the young actress who plays Abra that I uh, turned the page off for. Yeah. Kylie Curran. Yeah. Kylie Curran. How do you feel about those performances? So the casting I was, I was fine with it. You and McGregor is a great actor, been a fan of his forever. And uh, I, I wasn't, I never had, even when I was watching or reading the book, I didn't have a clear picture of what Dan Torrance looked like. Um, and I think it had been announced already that Ewan McGregor was playing him. So mm-hmm. I think that's who I envisioned basically. Okay. Um, so he was great and he did a great job. I He's he's never not good. You know, he's always fun to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, pretty much the rest of the cast are either like kind of B-list actors or they're kind of character actors. Like Cliff Curtis has been in huge, big-ass movies, but 
he, he's a that guy. He's a character actor. Oh, yeah. And I know his name mm. and all that, but like it, he, he's not necessarily someone you get excited about, could be, right. which is the definition of a character actor. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not trying to talk shit about him. Right. Like he's fantastic. I, he's he was great in this. He's mm-hmm. great in everything. He's played like 25 different ethnicities because yeah. he's like he's such a cool guy. He just doesn't fit mm-hmm. into a box. So that's that's what I love about Cliff Curtis. He can do anything. Mm-hmm. Like he's so dynamic. That's it. Um, I didn't know that he's from uh, New Zealand. Oh, I forgot about. That. I thought he was American. Yeah. I don't even see. He, yes. He's a chameleon. You don't know. Oh yeah. He's like he's like uh, the the Kiwi Gary Oldman, right? Right, yeah. Uh, <laughs> would be remiss if I didn't bring up Sunshine. Uh, yes, God, love that movie, and he's great in it. Absolutely, uh, yeah. uh, but I think of the other four main characters, the um, Kylie Curran, she was great. I loved her um, her performance. She uh, especially one of my favorite parts about Abra, the character, is the fact that she has the Torrance temper. Um, yes. that, um, you know, was most famously showcased by Jack Nicholson in the, in the movie, mm-hmm. um, but is, is also present in the book, obviously, uh, with Jack Torrance, Jack Torrance's father. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Dan Torrance has it, you know, to an extent they're, they're kind of temperamental yeah. folks and, oh, yeah. uh, and she did a great job with that's hard. That's gotta be hard for something to, you know, as a 13, 14 year old kid, to tap into that kind of aggression and, mm-hmm. and just put in a great performance. And, and that was, that was one of my favorite parts of, of her performance. Uh, she pulled that off really well. And then to round it out, Rebecca Ferguson, I had seen her before. Mm-hmm. I can't even remember what I've really seen her in, but uh, I was really excited for this because this is a tough role. This is yeah a, a very kind of evil. She is an evil being person mm-hmm. that you still sympathize with which we talked about in the um the book review absolutely on here the 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 true knot was somewhat sympathetic because there's the survival aspect to them um and she really really nailed it i mean she was scary um there are some scenes in particular that i'll reference mm-hmm. and she was creepy she's uh in the book she's described by some people as being absolutely beautiful and stunning mm-hmm. and gorgeous and uh and she fit that bill for sure yes. she's a very pretty lady um but yeah i i i really really enjoyed her performance and it i hate to keep bringing it up but it makes me super excited for dune because she plays oh yeah a major role in, in dune so okay. yeah nice. so yeah the casting was great mm-hmm. uh and everybody else did a great job too bruce greenwood who i hope is becomes a regular of oh, yeah. mike flanagan's i me too uh that dude i I I love Bruce Greenwood. Um, Me too. He's so good. He's he's amazing. Um yeah, I agree with everything. <laughs> the performances and, and the casting were just phenomenal. Like the the casting in uh for the beginning scenes with uh young Danny and and Wendy, um like there were like there's a lot of praise at the uh actress that plays Wendy in it, uh Alex Esso. Um, which like at the beginning, like it was like, okay, I mean, she's, she, it's not Shelly Duvall, obviously, but like the, like the commitment to the Shelly Duvall-ness of it, um, in Alex Esso's performance is like, like the moment where she runs up to Danny after Danny is speaking to Dick at the beginning of the movie, I was like, holy shit, that is Wendy Torrance. (laughs) 
Torrance. <laughs> like, yeah. That's Kubrick's Wendy Torrance, like from the Kubrick movie. <laughs> right. Like, it was it was surreal. It was really cool. Um, and like I saw uh, people talking about the use of recasting in in this movie as opposed to like facial de-aging and everything or, or deep fakes and everything it's like we don't need that technology because like we have performers who can perform like they can act like people <laughs> um i think that would have been a distraction 100 percent, 100 oh yeah um how did you feel about the just the uh, like the visual style and everything it's a very it obviously it's a very dark and grim movie um, there are some very interesting set pieces that are terrifying and gruesome, um, but not gratuitously. So, in my opinion, how did you feel about the kind of big scare moments of it, and how it and did it do justice to the original and uh, the book? As far as the visual style of uh, of Mike Flanagan, I feel like he really. He does have a signature, but I, I think, and this is a big compliment that I fully intend, is that he reminds me a lot of David Fincher. Oh, that's um, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, David Fincher has a ton of texture mm-hmm. to his visual style. He's very big on filters, and I feel, I haven't really read interviews with Mike Flanagan, but I feel like he uses some kind of filters on his on his cameras, mm-hmm. um, and it just, it transcends really it transfers very well i feel like um gerald's game really had kind of a red greenish filter on it that that sort of uh sort of took over the color palette in a really beautiful way um there's a lot of flashbacks in that movie and stuff like that uh and that was used to great effect in that movie um obviously the haunting of Hill House is very dark. It just has a very dark, like mm-hmm. almost like a deep navy blue color tone to it. And uh, and I, I think The Shining felt red again. had had very red tones to it, which makes perfect sense with the giant wall of blood <laughs> that the original movie is known for. You know, um, and uh, that that stuff really just comes across great. He communicates that that well. I mean, his visual style. I think he's really he's really found it and, and it, it was on full display in this movie. Mm-hmm. I loved it. Um, Oh, I absolutely. forgot what else you said. Sorry. I know I keep asking like three questions. At once. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but to your point about that, like the, the color palette and the, just the visual style, like the, the camera movements also just like it's, it is just a completely confident and just cocksure way like to show like to tell the story it's it's so evocative like the scene with the baseball boy and when when they get to that abandoned place um just like the the dark misty uh environment of it is just so chilling and and just that type of set is just so so effective um especially for what happens there Right, and he didn't. He didn't like try to rip off Kubrick, like no, you know, because Stanley Kubrick is so famous for his very static, wide lens shots. Yes. He's the master of it. I don't. I'm not sure anyone will ever top him in that regard. Right. Um, but he didn't go for that. He used some wide shots and to good effect, but it wasn't. It wasn't a rip off of Stanley right. Kubrick's visual style, which, as fan fantastic and as iconic as it was in The Shining, his movie. 
I'm so glad he didn't try to do that because it, oh, again, yeah. it would have been a, it would have been a distraction. It would have been a distraction and a total cop out, also. Um, right. And one of the, I think one of the complaints that I've heard <laughs> is that people went in, and this is probably a fault on the marketing of the movie, also. But people went into it not knowing the not knowing the book, but like went into it expecting like, oh, it's a straight up Shining sequel. So like when the mm-hmm. Overlook isn't even a, even in the like conscience conscious of the film until the last 30 minutes. Like that's kind of, kind of be a little, um, a little discombobulating for some of the lay audiences. But, um, right. I thought that that was that, that restraint was really good. Um, granted he has the roadmap of the book, but like when it gets to that point, not we'll talk about it in spoilers, but when it gets to that point, that's when he starts like, paying homage to Kubrick, but in a way that's like just not being showy about it. It's just bringing you back into it's, it's a narrative technique. It's like, he's bringing you back into the frame of mind of the shining because Dan is being brought back into the frame of mind of the shining. Um, Yes. It's just, it's so just so again, confident and, and cocksure. Yes. And, um, to, to get to your point where you mentioned kind of the the scare parts of the of mm-hmm. the film and the some of the standout parts you mentioned when they go and find the uh when the true not finds the the young boy in Iowa who they they kill and take his steam um that Fuck, I, I've been like wanting to talk about this scene because <laughs> it was so fucking brutal without being – you used a great word. You were like it was it was brutal, which is the, the term that I thought of as I was watching it, but it wasn't gratuitous. Right. It wasn't like Tarantino blood, yeah. but you still saw some blood. Mm-hmm. And huge freaking shout out to Jacob Tremblay. Oh, my God. Who, so good. I mean already has a ridiculous resume as mm-hmm. a 13-year-old or whatever. Right. Um. I mean, he, like, I thought they killed that kid. Like, he, yeah. he oh, yeah. crushed that performance. Mm-hmm. And I, everybody else was, all the other actors were so creepy. I mean, mm-hmm. one of the most effective parts of that scene is the sound. Yes. You can hear the knife going into his body, and mm-hmm. you see, you, you see how, you see the pleasure on their faces, and yes. you hear, like, the moans of pleasure mm-hmm. as they're, absorbing this kid's steam Mm -hmm. his essence it was like beautifully disgusting Mm -hmm. that is a great way to describe it (laughs) um yes beautifully disgusting and it's also just like the language of the film like it communicating to us that like okay pain evokes the steam like out of them and that's what they're craving and everything so as long as they keep him alive like as long as he like they're drawing out his death to get more steam out of him. Like that is just so disturbing. And that comes into play later in the movie a little bit as well. Yes. But like, it's just, it's so just so well done. Um, also I just found, I don't think I knew this and I've seen the movie like three times now, but the, one of the guys in the stands at the baseball game, um, one of the, like one of the ones talking, saying like, Oh, Hey, look at number 19. He, he knows where the pitch is going to come even before it comes or whatever. Um, that conversation, one of those guys is Danny Lloyd, uh, from the, from the original, the shining. No shit. I didn't know that. Yep, I just, I just saw that. That's, uh, that's pretty awesome. Um, that is awesome. Yeah. And we'll talk more about kind of the Easter eggs and everything later. Cause there are some really great dark tower Easter eggs. Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, so how did you feel about the the kind of evolution of Dan Torrance from from the beginning of the movie to to the last act? Um, how did you feel about his growth as a character and his journey throughout Doctor Sleep? Uh, it was fantastic. I was, I was so happy with what Stephen King did with Dan Torrance. Um, like I said in our review, I didn't know how much I wanted to know what happened to him until yeah. I started reading this book. Um, and, and right out of the bat, right out of the bat, um, right off the bat, um, with the character in the, in the book, we, we see him when he's at his worst and he's, he's he's become what you hoped he didn't become you know he's he's following the unfortunate path of his father he's an alcoholic he's down on his luck he's basically a loser um and and then he has this this very haunting episode where he sleeps with his woman and and steals her money and this her basically infant child almost gets exposed to their drugs. I mean, it's just, it's a very horrific thing. And, and, and to see him achieve the sobriety that his dad never did Mm -hmm. just makes him so much more as a fan. I was appreciative of that. You know, it just, he, it's, he finally brought redemption to the Torrance family, right? He broke the cycle Mm -hmm. and that's because it's, it's in the first book, how Jack's father was horrifically abusive Right. Um, and, and unfortunately Jack got to that level too in the, in the book and, you know, <laughs> was trying to kill his family. Um, and so to see Danny break the cycle so early on in the, in the, in the book and just see him try to do something with his gift. Uh, I just really love what they did with the character. And, uh, are we going into spoilers right now? I, um, we let's hold off on spoilers and then I'll, I'll okay. bring us into spoilers here in a second. Okay. So I'll, I'll leave it there, but I mean, just, the conclusion of his character is just amazing, but we'll get to that in spoilers. Absolutely. Um, something that struck me about the movie, <laughs> uh, when I rewatched it, the, just this recent time is, eh, I'll bring that up. I'll bring that up. Well, let's go into spoilers actually. Um, cause, okay. um, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, so yeah, let's go into spoilers for Dr. Sleep, the movie. Um, I'm going to play a clip from the trailer. If you haven't seen Dr. Sleep, uh, why are you listening to this? Um, <laughs> but if you haven't seen it, uh, come back and listen to the spoiler section. Um, yeah. And if you have seen it, just uh, sit back and enjoy this clip from the trailer. When we come back, we're going to be spoiling Dr. Sleep. How many ride the bus this far north? You're running away from something? Running away from myself, I guess. Hi. You can hear me. You're magic. Like me. I don't know about magic. I always called it the shining. The world is a hungry place. A dangerous place. These people, they hurt people like us. These empty devils, they'll eat watch hands. And they've noticed that little girl. Wow, hi there. Get out of my head! Get out! 
Okay, so into spoilers for Doctor Sleep. Uh, the thing that I want to bring up about Dan Torrance, and I do love how we get that opening of him. Like it's uh, um, it's him and like his rock bottom essentially. Um, and something I didn't pick up on until this most recent rewatch was that when he's at the bar, he says um, he he mutters to him like to like to the guy he's about to fight. He says something like, "You're going to take your medicine," and I thought that that was just just exquisite. Like that was just yes. perfect. Um, but the time jump to I think it's eight years later. Um, after Thanos has snapped everyone. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> no, when uh, we come back to like eight years later, when he's like eight years sober and he's talking, he's at he's at the AA meeting and he's talking about his chip and everything. Something that I, I feel like is really um, introduces a, an, a very interesting complexity to the character and the family dynamic that carries over from The Shining is that he dedicates that chip to Jack Torrance. And he dedicates yes. it to like his father because his father couldn't get to that point. And that is such a complex kind of uh, relationship to tie together because Jack Torrance is crazy. <laughs> like He tried to murder them mm-hmm. and everything and succumb to the the overlook and everything. And it's just... You see, I, I think that that is one of the things that kind of pokes out the, um, the the kind of tricky characterization of Kubrick's movie. It's kind of like it shows that the error in that, I guess, because we don't get that redemption moment, which we'll talk about later uh, for Doctor Sleep. But in the Shining movie, we don't get that redemption. But I love that internally for Dan, he has come to peace with the demon of his father and through his sobriety. And it's just yes. it's such a complex thing. And that's, that's not taken to a point of too much. Like it's not, it's not the focal point of the movie per se, but it is there enough to be important enough for the character. I just, it's just such a fine line of characterization that I, I really loved about the movie. Yeah, absolutely. And, and for, People who didn't read the book and all they have for a picture of Jack Torrance is Jack Nicholson's performance in Stanley Kubrick's film. It's really, really unfortunate that that's all they have because that is such an incomplete picture Mm -hmm. of who Jack Torrance really is and who he is in the books. And and honestly, I bet people who have only seen the movie were – kind of confused by that moment where he dedicates his sobriety chip to his dad because Jack Nicholson was pretty horrific through that whole movie. He's never, he was never the loving Jack Torrance that we got in the book. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in, in, in the book, Jack Torrance saves his son. Right. He, he holds off the hotel from taking his son long enough for his son to escape. Mm-hmm. And then the hotel blows up. And he yeah. dies tragically and he sacrifices himself and that people who have seen only seen the movie don't know that weight of of him dedicating that chip to his dad. And right. it's it's really unfortunate. Um, we talked we've talked before about uh, I think last year we did our film review of The Shining mm-hmm. of uh, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. And we both really talked about how we have to reconcile the fact that. Stanley Kubrick kind of ruined Stephen King's vision of that book, <laughs> yeah. but we both really like that movie. It's still a great movie. 
but it's it, it really was not true to the characters and the story, Absolutely. but visually and and on so many other levels, it's just a remarkable film. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel bad, kind of, uh, kind of shitting on it, frankly, right here. But right. but that's that's the drawback, and that that's the beauty of being a complete fan and 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 reading all these, experience all four stories right. of the Torrance family, and, and you know this is the latest one and. I, I hope it's the last one. Um, yeah. The way that the way that it's all brought together, and, and and that that moment where he dedicates that sobriety chip to his dad is is one of those just beautiful culminations of mm-hmm. fuck forty fifty years of a story. Yeah. Oh yeah. And and I talked about just the the shining the way the shining uh permeates or the way that the shining reflects stephen king's growth and personal as as a person over the years in a yes. previous episode but like this is such an interesting culmination to that as well even though like he obviously mike flanagan wrote it but like it's just it's just cool to see like this important piece of stephen king's like oeuvre um pay off in such an incredibly done movie incredibly mm-hmm. well done movie like it is it's satisfying to me that this story this different iterations of this story these characters and stuff have been you like like they've been handled throughout throughout decades of storytelling uh through Stephen King's life that Stephen King has added tidbits about his own life into each iteration and now we have this what i feel is a crowning achievement of a film um Mm-hmm. to kind of pay off everything that's come before it. Um, and I just think that that is like, like we said in the non-spoiler thing, it's a fucking magic trick. Like it is, yeah, it is unbelievable. Like the, the achievement that was done with this. Uh, and, I, and I just realized I misspoke. There's five, five stories of the Torrance. Cause I kind of, I kind of wrote off the mini series. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which I, I, I I'm 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 mad I did that because I actually think the miniseries has its merits and I think it's right. worth a watch. Yeah, I and I didn't even question. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Um yeah, it's not like we've done episodes for each individual iteration either. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh god. Um yeah, so uh, uh, the relationship between Abra and Dan as well, the kind of pivot to that. Um I agree completely with your assessment that she does a great job of showcasing that kind of torrency thing where it's very, like she's angry. She has that anger in her and that aggression. Um, and by the way, I don't, I mean, I guess we can spoil the novel, but uh, let's, I'll say that there's an element to the novel that I'm glad did not make it into the movie. <laughs> um, yeah. And if you want to know uh, the context of that, listen to the spoiler review for the book um, in our last episode. But, um, but yeah, I'm glad that that wasn't incorporated, but it's still, there's still something there that maybe it's in this iteration of the story and this version of like this movie in the language of the movie. It's almost like, the shining ability. I don't know if the shining ability necessarily awaken, awakens that. I think it's more just a naivete of youth and like a youth with superpowers. <laughs> like she's going to be more emotional and everything, but I think it's mm-hmm. communicated so well. Like when she has her conflict with uh, like that trap she sets for Rose, the hat um, with the hand and everything and like the glee that she has for that is just, it's, it's fantastic. 
Um, yes. Yeah. How did you feel about uh, Abra and uh, Dan? Um, it, it's great, and I, I love the, I love the parallel with the the first the first book. Um, the parallel of Dan and um, Dick Halloran, mm-hmm. and now Dan as an adult guiding and helping uh, Abra. You know, I, I mm-hmm. and that's that's displayed beautifully throughout the movie really well done in the movie and the book obviously yeah. um i'd say they're kind of no nah, i'm not gonna say that. i was gonna say they're kind of on par for me oh. uh but i i honestly think i think uh mike flanagan did it better in the movie the relationship between yeah. abra and dan um which i it kind of culminates in in the big spoiler at the end that we haven't mentioned yet but uh but anyways um the, the the parallel between those two relationships, Dan and Dick, and then Dan and Abra, is is really beautiful, and I think it's it's uh, it's so satisfyingly mentioned when early on, sort of, sort of early on in the story, when Dan actually meets uh, Dick Halloran's ghost for the first time, yeah. and that just he he sort of mentions how he owes a debt pretty much mm-hmm. to the shining and, and he has to, you know, he needs to help this girl the same way that Dick helped him. And, yeah. and I just love the way that he embraces that responsibility and it really gives him drive throughout the rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and, and just that interaction was fucking cool. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, I know that in the book that the interaction with, with young Dan, uh, Danny and, and Dick, in the book, that was one of your favorite parts in terms of in terms of the content and everything. Do you think that because the story of Dick's grandfather and everything, obviously it's it's much 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 toned down for the movie. Um, yeah. Did you feel like it sold that history of for Dick well, or would, did you find that lacking at all, or how did you respond to that scene? I was fine with it. I mean. Mike Flanagan expanded so much more of this book that I was fine with him making edits where he had to. And and I think that was, that was fine because he was still true to the character and put it in the movie, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't as effective as the way Stephen King wrote it. That's one area where obviously where Stephen King, I think excelled over Mike Flanagan is that he, that part was so cool in the book and it was just, scary and I love the way that it influenced Dick Halloran's character, mm-hmm. you know, decades after he was originally written. I, I yeah. loved that. Um but the just the moment where Dan as an adult, as a sober and uh balanced and somewhat happy man mm-hmm. actually gets to talk to Dick Halloran again. Like yes. that was just I really loved that. It was because, you know, like I said, Dan has just been through mm-hmm. hell. I mean, just absolute hell as, as a kid. And then as an adult, didn't know how to tackle his literal demons. Yeah. Um, and, and just seeing the fact that Dick Halloran got to see him like that. It's just mm-hmm. it's like a, the, the emotion of this final story was just through the roof for, for me personally. Like, mm-hmm. um, like, and I, I feel like it's totally justifiable because I mentioned in our book review last year, I read that book when I was 12 or 13. Mm-hmm. That was 20 years ago. Like I've been sitting with the Torrance family and been a fan of this 
this universe, this story mm. for more than half my life. And it, there's not a lot, not a lot of stories that are like that for right. me. Like I, there's not a lot of stuff that spanned my entire life. Um, but this is one of those things and, and mm. to see it done so well, there's just so many, all these little things are not little to me and to people who are big fans of this. I mean, I can't even, I can't even imagine how people feel who read this novel back in 1978 mm-hmm. when it was published. I don't even remember 77. I think 77. Yeah. I mean, they've been sitting with it for 50 years, damn mm-hmm. near. So yeah, oh, it's yeah. just, it's such a deep story that I, all those little things really add up to something special. Absolutely. And when watching the movie again, like that moment where adult Dan sees, sees Dick Halloran in, in the, uh, in the hospice room, um, that vision of him, uh, Ewan McGregor plays it. Like he's got this look of just like pure, genuine joy to see Dick Halloran. Mm-hmm. And I just, I loved that. I thought that that was just such a nice choice by Ewan McGregor um, in terms of playing that, playing that part. Um, also, we are technically a Dark Tower podcast. Yeah. Uh, Dick Halloran says, cause a wheel. He does. I loved it so yep. much. And I love it because, well, everything but also uh like it's just it's the same thing that happened with with Gerald's game like Bruce Greenwood Gerald as Gerald in Gerald's game says all things serve the beam and now Mike Flanagan's <laughs> back with another direct reference to the Dark Tower series and it's just i like there were so many moments throughout the movie that I just had just a shit eating grin on my face. And that was one that was I was just like I think I clapped in the theater. <laughs> um <laughs> It was I I love I love those little touches there. Um Yeah. I'm pretty sure I gasped. Yeah, yep. And uh and while we're kind of hovering around it, I probably could have saved this for after the review, but a couple other Dark Tower references. The tra- the bus uh is, is has uh, Tet transportation and the mm-hmm. abandoned like industrial area where they take the uh baseball boy is uh has a sign for Lemurk Industries yep. and uh the stuffed or the the balloon animal display and the uh the bookend on the back uh of um on the backboard of Abra's bed uh looks like ka which uh, which I tweeted about when the movie came out and uh, confirmed that Mike Flanagan like confirmed that that was intentional, an intentional reference to Ka. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's pretty cool. Totally. Yeah. Um. So, how did you feel about the depiction of the True Knot uh, as a group? Because in the book, it, from my taste personally, the book, uh, the True Knot are just really interesting villains because they are. They they are purely driven by their need to survive, and it, it like I talked about this in the book review, but it's it's so just it's so cool to have like a villain, a group of villains that are doing just abhorrent, evil, like terrible things, but it's not for any other purpose other than to feed them, to feed themselves. It's for sustenance, and it's just it's such an interesting kind of thing to to have in a book and in a story so how did you feel about the depiction of the true knot and uh in in the movie um it was good i i think i i think 
King did a little better in the book. I feel like the True Knot had more detail in the book. Um, I love the part in the book where Stephen King is talking about how they're like this this nomadic kind of tribe, and they they do so well to they're so good at blending in as just these kind of bland uh, RV people, sort yeah. of, and and that was sort of skipped over or. Mm-hmm passed over in the movie and that was that was perfectly fine i didn't have an issue with that um one thing i did appreciate though was uh the chemistry between rebecca ferguson and uh zonda clarnan who we didn't mention but he played oh, yeah. uh crow daddy. crow daddy um i thought they had really good chemistry and yeah. and the 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 the, the sympathy the sympathy and the empathy that we both mentioned that you have with the true knot i think was really exemplified well in their chemistry like you feel like they really love each other and they're not just being greedy by going after steam they they want to see each other survive like they care for each other and that's a very human quality and and a, a very universal quality and so there were some important interactions between the two of them that really drove that point home really well so um and then just like I, we, we talked about when they they killed the boy in the Lumberg Industries uh, so awesome. abandoned warehouse and stuff like that. That was amazing. Um, and it's sort of the precursor to that where they kind of stalked that, that young girl by the side of the lake was uh, mm-hmm. the whole stalking aspect of that was very creepy. Mm-hmm. I liked that. That was uh, – Rebecca Ferguson nailed that part. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But it was – and uh, I think um, – the actress who played Snakebite Andy, uh, Emily Allen Lind, yeah, uh, she did a great job too. I, I liked her. I liked her role, but uh, she was a little bit more prominent of a character in the book. Yeah, she was kind of, in the book. She was kind of an audience surrogate for the True Knot, um, mm-hmm. and in the movie, she's kind of just brought in. Like, she's kind of just brought in. To, she doesn't really serve that much of a purpose in the right. movie except to be just the in introduction to the true knot themselves. Right. Um, exactly. I, yeah. I'm fine with, but yeah. Yeah. I, I, I was perfectly happy with, with what Mike Flanagan and Flanagan did with the true knot. Yeah. Same, yeah. same here. Um, the, yeah, same here. Uh, just the depiction of it. Like you said, the, the scene at the beginning, that opening scene with, uh, Rose, the hat and, uh, Violet is the girl's name. Um, Mm -hmm. it's super just creepy and unsettling. And I love that it's, it's so like, uh, it's, it's so like, she takes a flower and she eats it. And like the girl's like, Oh, you're not supposed to eat flowers. And it's like, she's, she's literally eating like, violet like she's eating like uh, yeah she's eating like like that's it's you know it's a little bit of a of um foreshadowing i guess but right um but yeah i i love the way that the true knot is depicted throughout the throughout the movie it juggles so much between the true knot between abra dan's story all that and it's it's done so well um and i feel like it's a really great greatly paced movie um with the conflict with the true knot and everything like um first of all let's i'll talk about this and then we can go into the the shining aspects of it as well and the overlook but cliff curtis his character as billy um i love 
we talked about him in non-spoilers, but I just I love him as just like you said a character actor, and he does such a great job of playing this sympathetic, empathetic person toward Dan, and he is like he's he's basically like I mean he's his his sponsor essentially, but I just I love the the just genuine care that goes into their relationship. I think both actors played off it really well. So much so that when we get to the very cool action set piece, uh, the kind of like, like the all out, like the gun battle, um, in the woods and like that, like, first of all, that as a scene is really effective and cool, but just the ending where snake by Andy, as she's dying, tells him to kill her, to kill himself. And he does it is like, it rips my heart out. Um, also, yes. not to throw shade, but I love that this movie is able to do what the Dark Tower movie tried to do with The Man in Black, but they actually yes. did it in a very good way. Right. <laughs> like, it's so, like, because we ripped on the movie, The Dark Tower, for doing, like, the stop breathing and hate thing. And, like, yes. it's literally the exact same thing. Like, it is the exact same thing in this, and it is to so much better effect. I can't explain it, but it's, like, it's so, I don't know. I just thought that that was really funny. Um, it's that wow factor that you can't quantify. Yeah. It's it's skill. It's it's just skill as a filmmaker, yeah. and, and everybody, the, the editors, the writer, you know. It's just, it's just. I think there was a lot more talent, talent involved with this movie. Frankly, <laughs> absolutely. Um, it, yeah. So I, I think, I think that's it. That was the intangible factor that made it work in this movie, and it didn't in the other one. Yeah. But yeah, I, I love that part too. It felt very. Um, this is another, maybe strange comparison, but mm-hmm. uh, it felt very Joss Whedon because that's what Joss Whedon likes to do. He'll make you fall in love with these oh, characters. Yeah. And then he'll pick one. He'll just kill him off at the drop of a hat. Right. Um, I don't mind spoiling Avengers because right. that was twelve years ago mm-hmm. or whatever. Uh, like when Agent Coulson, mm-hmm. you know, when he dies in the first Avengers movie, like that's it, he just rips your heart out, like you said. Oh, yeah. And and that's that's how that scene felt. And mm-hmm. it's just so effective. Uh, absolutely, absolutely, and like. There, there's a narrative necessity to it because it just it frees the plot up for Dan and Abra to go to the Overlook and everything without Billy being there. Um, but it doesn't feel like it's a plot necessity. It feels like it's just it. It is an organic element of the story. Um, also, the that's a kind of one-two punch with with him dying and then like the reveal that yeah, Crow Daddy killed uh, Abra's dad. Um, as he's taking her out of the house, it's just like it's such a cool like sequence, uh, to bring us into this next section of the movie. Um, mm-hmm. and before we get to the overlook stuff, I do want to talk about just the incredible scene where Abra's in the backseat of the of the car, uh, and Crow Daddy is is driving her to to Rose the Hat, and just like like that like that scene, um is so so great like kylie uh curran when like the performance that she gives when dan uh kind of possesses her um and kind of talks to crow daddy like the way that she switches up her performance and performs as ewan mcgregor as dan but it's still her uh just is so 
Like it is, it is so cool. Like I, I think that it's one of the standout moments of this, of the movie, um, from an acting standpoint, cause she just knocked it out of the park. Um, yeah. How did you feel about that? Yes. I was going to mention earlier when we, when I was talking about her performance, that's one of my favorite parts of the nice. whole movie and, uh, probably my favorite part of her performance. I didn't bring it up cause it's a spoiler. So I had right. to wait till now, but yeah, <laughs> uh, one of my favorite parts of the movie. So cool. Oh, absolutely. And just, and also the writing, like just the, like her laughing and just being like, Oh, arrogance, you know, you think you live forever, so you don't need to worry about like wearing your seatbelt and then boom, it's just, yeah. oh, it's so good. Um, and also just like that is a, obviously a pivoting moment for the story. Cause it brings us, it transitions us over to going to the overlook in the final half hour of the movie. But it's also like, that's the end of the true knot. Like, like, they're gone. Like Rose, the hat is just about the only person left. Um, of yeah. at least that tribe of the true knot. And like, it becomes this thing of like, she's out for revenge. She wants to, she's, she's out for vengeance. And like, it's, it just sets the stage in a very unique way for the end of the movie. Um, and then we get, you know, him, the, we get Dan and Abra going to the overlook. So, yeah, should we talk about that? <laughs> yes, I think we need to get to the the climax here. We do. So, first of all, just the the scene that establishes that phase of the movie, that act of the movie, uh, the replica of the opening scene of The Shining, with the score and everything, and like oh. the helicopter shot over the water uh, by the mountains, just oh, like another shit eating grin on my face. <laughs> yes me too um, loved it loved it and and then when they get to the overlook and he's just like i've got to i've you got to wait out here i've got to wake it up and like i just oh god it it was it was so satisfying how did you feel about the end game of the of the of the uh of the movie oh, it was so cool um it's I, I hate to say it, but it's so much cooler than the book yeah because you know in in the book, the hotel is gone, and right. it feels like it just it doesn't feel the same. And yeah. and and the the imagery that Stanley Kubrick achieved with his film was is so iconic, and it still permeates modern pop culture. Yep. And it had to be in the movie. You could not make this movie without Stanley Kubrick's Overlook Hotel. You just yep. couldn't do it. And uh, I, I I was just so happy with the way he incorporated it in, into the movie, and to just to be back there again, visually, they nailed it. I mean, that's it was pretty much perfect. You know, it, absolutely. They they got all the details right. Um, yeah, but just in in some of the fun kind of fun, almost like action one-liners when he's like, you stay here, I've got to wake it up, like right. you just mentioned. I just <laughs> yeah. like that's such a fun line. Oh yeah. Just, and- I think, oh, I think he's, so cool. He says "wakey wakey" when he turns the lights yeah, on. Right, it's like it's like it was Arnold Schwarzenegger yeah, in T exactly. four walking through there. You know, um, so so good. Um, I and it's just the the imagery of it, the just the iconography replicated in this new movie is just is so perfect and and well done. Um. And then we get the, the special treat of the uh, the is it the is it the Cal- uh, the gold room I think um, or the Colorado Lounge I don't know anyway um, yeah. the bar scene <laughs> uh, 
yeah. with Henry Thomas playing 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 Jack Torrance. Um, mm-hmm. I I love that uh, so much. How did you feel about that interaction in the movie? I think my favorite part of it is that, um, yeah, Henry Thomas, not a person that I would have predicted to emulate Jack Nicholson so well. Right. Yeah. Um, but he did, he did a great job and it wasn't like an impression that like makes you laugh, but mm-hmm. you had no doubt in your, like he did a great job yeah. emulating that character so well. But I think my favorite part of it is the fact that Jack Torrance is gone. He is gone. Like the hotel has completely eliminated any, any redeeming characteristic that he had in the book. Mm -hmm. And he is just, he's just completely been gone. He's the loving father might as well have never existed. Like that's how far gone he is and is exemplified so beautifully in that dialogue scene he's just he is just so aggressive and so icky like with these horrible things he's saying to his son and it's like Mm. he doesn't care that it's his son he's just this this entity that's been taken over by this hotel and it's i mean it's absolutely tragic and you can see it pouring off of you in mcgregor's face Mm -hmm. um but he's also, you know, he's been here before and he's he right. experienced it as a four year old kid. You know, he can handle it now as a as a stable adult. And just the fact that he it's it's absolutely heartbreaking that he can't have a moment with his dad again. Mm-hmm. It's because his dad has been just is just gone. Yeah. Um, and the hotel just mocks him right. by doing that to him. And it's just brutal like mm. it just man i would if that were me like if i if i were danny torrance <laughs> i would have melted into a puddle mm. on the floor in that moment and just the fact that he perseveres through it and does what he does god i just really love that scene one of my favorite parts of the movie yeah same same here and uh i mentioned like the the beginning of the movie is kind of dan's rock bottom uh in his in his uh um alcoholism but like this is like his emotional like rock bottom moment um yes and it's just it's it's such a great such a great scene um and then to kind of move along the the kind of climactic showdown with him and rose the hat um i i love the the use of the maze and the kind of the confidence that she has but then the reveal that she like you know i the the kind of fight between them was was really well done um oh yeah and the culmination of it with the with the with the trunks um and just that great great freaking line from dan saying that uh <laughs> saying that they're they're not uh they're not hiding or whatever they're they're hungry or they're starving they're starving oh i love that line so good yeah um, and again another another very effectively brutal scene where yeah, she's totally. effectively consumed Mm-hmm. And before I love that, that. Same here. Oh, same here. Uh, it's it's so satisfying and it's so such a great payoff. And then before that, like the kind of calling back to kind of like taking the steam out of someone as they're as they're being injured and dying. Like Dan is like fatally wounded, 
um, and like the steam is coming out of him and stuff. It's just like that. It just brings the tension to such a heightened point um, that you almost feel like that's the end. But then we get the fucking magic trick. <laughs> yes. Oh my god! So going to room two thirty seven, and we get the moment. Fucking oh my god! The moment where Dan is being overtaken by the Overlook, and we get like, oh my god! I still can't believe that he pulled this off. Like I, I can't know believe, it's it's a, it's unreal. But we get the perfect marriage of Kubrick's movie and King's novel from 1977. We get this perfect meld where it's in the overlook as Stanley Kubrick uh, envisioned it and, and created it, but it is paying homage to that original novel in having Dan be the one to come back and, and, and get her to get out of there and then him taking on the role of Jack Torrance from the novel to overload the <laughs> boiler and blow up the hotel like wh- holy fuck man <laughs> I know so so brilliant unreal like I it is that is it is one of the most satisfying movie moments I've maybe ever had like Yes. I and it it's really mind blowing that like I can still feel this way when we have the portals scene from the Avengers Endgame. <laughs> and we have like so much other stuff going on, but like this is such a unique meld of that's it's such a cool moment to uh end the the movie on. It, it's so great. Um it is one of the best examples of fan service that i can think of yeah and like true fan service like yes like i said earlier in the episode like it's fan service from a fan perspective like it's someone who clearly has a deep admiration and love for this work and for this this person's body of work and it's just it is so ah it's just perfect it's it's just perfect um It, it really is yeah and like I don't even mind because like the book I, I love the way the book ends as well because the book has him confronting uh, his demons of, of like the the woman and the kid that he left behind that he stole the money from and everything like that the big defining moment for his character in the book is coming to terms with that and revealing that to his AA group and everything that's his big moment but here right. it's just like him taking up like like destroying the overlook and saving Abra and sacrificing himself um, for, for better or worse. Um, it's just, it's so, so satisfying. And we get the recursion of, of, of Wendy in the scene. I think he kind of transforms into, into young Danny before it blows up, I think. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. All that was, Oh God, I just I, <laughs> I could not possibly love it more. Absolutely. Um, I was crying my eyes out. Like I was nice. kind of sobbing a little bit. Nice. By the time he got to the boiler room and his mother was there, I mm. god, that was just so beautiful. And uh I I sort of see that moment as mm. it's it's kind of the culmination or the um it, it's really the comeuppance of Dan, but it's it's really it's so significant for the character of Wendy too. Cause like mm-hmm. I mentioned in the 
in in the uh, in Stanley Kubrick's movie, she is not done justice at all, and and the, none of the characters are in that movie, and it's really a shame because right. Wendy is such a critical character in the mm-hmm. in the book, uh, the original The Shining, uh, and uh, and and I think they the miniseries did a good job with her and Rebecca, Rebecca De Mornay in that performance did a good job. And, and that was so fun to see, but, but just seeing Wendy reunited with her son again and, and getting to see him in his best moment was, was super, super great. Um, And, and it's, I just love how that the moment of Dan holding off the hotel from consuming uh, Abra the way that Jack Torrance did with his son in the book mm-hmm. was just so amazing. And like, it just, it's again, it's another one of those things where it's like, it's, it's, it's really for the fans who have experienced all aspects of this story because the iconography of the shining is Stanley Kubrick's movie. Yeah. Right. And, and we've all kind of had to accept that. Mm-hmm. And some of us like it, some of us don't. Yeah. We've we've talked about it before. King even but, did. <laughs> like King even accepted. Well, it, right, yeah. but I'm sure I'm sure other big fans who have oh, experienced yeah. it the way that you and I have have also talked about it somewhat, yeah. or at least thought about it. And that moment can't exist in Stanley Kubrick's mm-hmm. Shining, right? And so the way that Mike Flanagan brought it into the universe was just absolutely beautiful, and and it's it's it means so much to people like us and it, it can finally be part of pop culture. If unfortunately this movie wasn't as, right. wasn't as popular as yeah. that, uh, as the shining it's, it's really a shame, but, yeah. uh, I feel like there's going to be a cult following for this movie. Like, I feel like it's going to get it to do. I really hope it does. Yeah. Cause I just, that moment is just, it's just perfection. Really? It, it is. Oh, 100%. Yeah. And uh, the kind of denouement of the movie is the reveal that, you know, Dan's dead, but he's visiting Abra and everything. Uh, that's a Yeah, nice and that was bow. just sweet. That was a yeah. very sweet moment. Oh, yeah. It's a very nice bow to put on the movie. And uh, mm-hmm. I love the moment where, where she tells her mom, she's just like, we go on, like, we, we go on. And I think she says some reassuring words about her dad. And it's just, it's a nice just end cap to, to the movie. And, and the this storyline um thread um that spanned decades so yeah yes yep um is that it <laughs> we did it it is um, it is yeah i was so looking forward to talking about this movie because I, I just yeah and uh and man we've taken our sweet time with it <laughs> we so, have yeah so uh so yeah that's our dr sleep series that's our shining doctor sleep series of reviews uh yep. we did it we can go on to something else now <laughs> um <laughs> super excited about that um yeah so that'll that's our review that'll do it for this episode of tower junkies coming up on the podcast i did have a great chat with uh our friend mike who you hear on the outro the pre-recorded outro every week on the podcast or every episode on the podcast uh we talked about eleven twenty two sixty three and his relationship with stephen king and everything so that'll come up after this episode at some point in a week or so um and then after that i don't i don't know tiny do you do you want us dive into what's it called castle rock season two am i putting you on the spot 
I, you're kind of putting me on the spot because I okay. still haven't watched it. I yeah wasn't feeling it after like two episodes. Okay. Well, I think what we can what we could probably do is do like like we did before, like just two episodes, talk about each like talk about the two episodes, like group yeah. them into two episodes. So, yeah, we'll talk yeah. off mic. <laughs> right. Yeah. All right. So yeah, that'll do. Any parting thoughts on Doctor Sleep on Mike Flanagan on uh. Anything else? Oh, uh, I'll yeah. Any parting thoughts? Uh, I can't wait to see what he does next. Um, and I'm Same. again. I, I didn't mention it at the end, but um, I feel like this. I hope this is the end for the Shining universe. Yeah. Like I think that this should be the last entry. Like I don't want Stephen King to write another book. I don't want somebody to make another movie. Yeah. I don't even know if I want like some spinoff where someone else is fighting <laughs> the true not in Europe or something. Like I, I like just. Let's just let it be. Like I'm this was so perfect. I just I hope it stays this way. I agree completely and I totally forgot to bring this up on the news uh section of the podcast. Oh boy. Uh so there was news um like a couple weeks ago I think. Um I'm going to need to dig it up, but HBO Max which is coming out next month, uh May 27th. Um, the new streaming services. It's going to be like kind of Warner Brothers whole catalog as lo- as well as uh, um, uh, HBO's stuff. Can you guys tell that I'm stalling because <laughs> I'm trying to find it here? Um, but yeah, there was news that basically uh, here we go. Wow, I almost timed that pretty well. Um, so uh, there's news that there's going to be an Overlook show. Um, so. No. Let's see. So, so basically, uh, there was a like TV movie that was made or in production that I think Glenn Mazzara had a role in. Like, I think he wrote the script. Um, uh, but then that kind of got shuttered and it, it didn't, it didn't go through or anything. Um, but, uh, according to the Hollywood reporter from April 16th, uh, overlook sources say is a 10 episode drama that has also opened a mini writer's room. Um, so let's see. Um, JJ Abrams has set his first three series at HBO max. Warner brothers forthcoming streaming service has handed out straight to series, straight to series orders. Holy shit. Uh, straight to series orders for duster, and the shining offshoot overlook um and what is described as a, a dc thing so um i don't know much there's not much information but it goes on to say that overlook a spinoff of sorts based on the iconic hotel featured in stephen king's 1977 novel novel and subsequent 1980 feature uh features characters from the horror thriller it explores the untold terrifying stories of the most famous haunted hotel in american fiction uh and this also, holy shit. Uh, the project reunites Bad Robot, King, and Warner Brothers TV following the Hulu anthology Castle Rock. Uh, the 10-episode drama, sources say, is being written and executive produced by Dustin Thomason and Scott Brown, who who previously worked on Castle Rock. Um, yes, so the series has, per sources, also opened a mini writer's room to get a jump on scripts during the industry-wide production shutdown. So... Uh, to kind of end the episode, I should have brought this up before, but I would have probably just gloated and been so excited. But I think this is the the dream. This is what I wanted. Um, <laughs> I I hope I hope like hell that this is going to be like Castle Rock and that it is a season antho- season story anthology series. 
like each season tells a story that is independent from the previous season and just charts history throughout the overlook. Um, how do you feel about this news? What do you think about it and everything? And yeah, I can't, I mean, I can't believe I can't be entirely against it. It sounds pretty cool, even yeah. though I, I made that very definitive statement a moment ago, right. but uh, I, I think really I ju- I'm just done with, I'm, I'm, so happy with the Torrance family. Like I'm yeah. so happy with where they ended up. You know, mm-hmm. I don't want any more with them. Like if they want to come back to this universe, I would completely understand. Yeah. Uh, and I think the shine, the concept of the shine mm-hmm. is not going to go anywhere. I think that's right. going to continue to be adapted in other stories. And mm-hmm. Stephen King might even write about it again or have another character who has it again. Yeah. Um, and I think that's fine. But, and this, this sounds pretty cool. So, yeah. uh, I, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I'm excited for it. <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah, I, it doesn't look like we're going to get any more seasons of Castle Rock, so I'm hoping that this just carries on that legacy. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, on that note, that'll do it for this episode of Tower Junkies. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. Like I said, we're going to have an episode about 112263 coming up, and then I think I'm going to try to twist Tiny's arm into doing our review series on Castle Rock. Uh, we'll see. But, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, uh, Thank you guys for listening. Uh, check out the Obsessive Viewer and Anthology, which I just recently relaunched. Um, yeah, any parting thoughts before we wrap it up? No, sir. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for listening once again, and long days and pleasant nights. And we have twice the number. And now, here's a short clip from our Patreon-exclusive RSS feed. To hear the full clip and more exclusive Patreon content, go to patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer and become a patron at the minimum rate of $1 per month. Thank you and enjoy. Sweet. Um, but yeah, so I'm so excited. And by the way, like, just going to throw this out there right now. If you're looking for something to watch uh, and you have like 25 minutes to kill, Go watch season two of the Twilight Zone, episode twenty nine, "The Obsolete Man." Um, okay. Like you remember how excited I was about the monsters are due on Maple Street? Yes. I am very much restraining myself from showing that excitement because I want you to watch the Obsolete <laughs> Man. <laughs> okay. Um, it's it's phenomenal. Like it's uh, like I won't say much about it, but what I will say is that in terms of just in terms of like the the set design, the writing, and like probably most importantly, or the one that I'll highlight is the acting, because um, it's Burgess okay. Meredith and Fritz Weaver, um, just like going head to head in ter- like it's two, it's basically like a two hander between them, um, and they're both just oh, it's it's. It is amazing, amazing acting. Nice. Um, I, uh, I'm i downloading it right now on my phone. Sweet. Nice. Nice. And then the other 28 episodes of season two, um, and then the 35 episodes of season one. Tower Junkies is edited and produced by Matt Hurt and presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. For a full archive of our episodes, go to TowerJunkiesPod.com slash archive. You can also like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash towerjunkiespod and follow us on Twitter at towerjunkiespod. If you enjoy the show, please take a couple minutes to leave us a rating and a quick review on Apple Podcasts. This is the easiest way to support what we do, and all it costs is just a little bit of your time. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can make a PayPal donation at towerjunkiespod.com slash donate 
or support us on Patreon for recurring donations and access to commentary tracks and B-roll audio recorded exclusively for patrons at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer. Every donation goes toward paying the fees to keep the podcast running and is greatly appreciated. For official Obsessive Viewer merch, including shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more, visit our Public store. You can find a link to the store in the show notes of this episode and at obsessiveviewer.com slash donate. Or you can simply search for Obsessive Viewer at tpublic.com. For information about our annual live event showcasing short horror films from local filmmakers, check out shocktoberinirvington.com. And for an archive of all our events, as well as news about potential future events, head over to obsessiveviewer.com slash live. For more podcast content, you can find our flagship movie and TV review and discussion show, The Obsessive Viewer Podcast, at obsessiveviewer.com and on Twitter at obsessiveviewer. You can also find Anthology, Matt's solo podcast covering The Twilight Zone, and other classic and contemporary science fiction anthology TV shows at anthologypod.com and OVAnthologyPod on Twitter. And finally, check out The Secular Perspective, Tiny's side project podcast, which tackles current events and life's big questions from the perspective of secular hosts Chad and Amanda at thesecularperspective.com. Music for the podcast is provided with permission from Fingers T on YouTube. Additional bumper music is provided courtesy of As Good As It Gets, which can be found at facebook.com slash asgoodasitgetsband. Thank you so much for listening. Long days and pleasant nights. Kitty!